third issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 226 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and at the weekend, one of my nephews, while trying to imply I am very, very old, told me I was uh, so stuck in 2016. 2016? I'm absolutely (laughs) delighted. Who knew I was so contemporary? (laughs) The good bit or the bad bit of 2016? hindsight you know 2016 is either a good or a terrible year to be stuck that, i mean I, I guess that's true but i thought he was going to say like 1916 so i just was like <laughs> we're a century ahead of what i was expecting this is good news for me i mean i still basically consider 2016 roughly now yeah but if you ask me to yeah. like name a charted hit from 2016 i'd be like oh, mm, mm. i'm thinking and i'm no. i'm coming up with nothing no Sorry. bangers <laughs> no bangers for me no but yeah, basically, I'm 39 forever, and I will take that. <laughs> Ideal age to be stuck at, I'd say. Mm-hmm. I'm Hannah's on leaving, and I am now permanently covered in cats. Except right now. It's true. Well, only because the door is closed, <laughs> but they are both sitting outside shouting because they want to come in, because <laughs> I haven't got my heating on, obvs. Therefore, me and the laptop are the two warmest things in the house. I did record a little video of just like... 90 seconds of my day. I was just about to say, photos or it didn't happen. Yeah, I'm going to put it on Patreon for our subscribers to get to enjoy how little time I get without a cat on my desk. If that's not an incentive to join Patreon, I don't know what is. Is it that you also get ad-free podcasts? You do also, and you get a shout out on the podcast. Hello, Emma Evely. Oh, hi, Emma. Emma's good on the Twitter as well, so uh, double shout for Emma. Yeah, I, I picked Emma special because she also has cats. How do you get anything done, Hannah? I don't understand. It's it's, it's an awful lot of cats you're fending off in that video. <laughs> I think uh, Hannah's got um, an evil twin sister who does all I the do. work for her. <laughs> That's apropos conversation we had off mic that we cannot legally repeat here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Jen Offord and adopt the brace position because I've just applied for my first provisional driving license. I think this might be the most exciting fact you've ever had, Jen. <laughs> I was going to say, this is the first time I've been pleased our bikes were stolen. Um, <laughs> there's an offer on the road. No, it is very exciting, Jen. I know, terrifying, but um, it's it's about time, shall we say. Is this actually something that's definitely going to happen Jen or is this a, a... I've, I've paid 34 pounds right. to the DVLA she's not a woman who likes to waste money no I don't like to waste money imagine what else I could have spent that 34 pounds on makeup skincare makeup exactly skincare the fridge on for possibly, an hour possibly <laughs> some fabric it has been my intention for a year almost now to uh, get my provisional license and learn to drive and 10 months into the year I have applied for my provisional licence. So yes, it's a thing. It's a thing. Because the trains from Harwich are shit. So <laughs> it's it's become necessary. You're moving almost as fast as Joe Biden there, Jen, with that timescale. <laughs> <sighs> well, I am ageing, as discussed. I wouldn't know about that. Permanently 39. Thanks very much. <laughs> I'm thinking Harwich is probably a good place to learn to drive. Certainly a lot better place than London. Yeah, no, I agree. And also much more necessary to drive in Harwich than it is in London. A little so, tip, though, Jen. Yeah. If your car's wet, you're doing it wrong. You've gone in the sea. Yeah. <laughs> Don't always listen to the sat now. No. I mean, I will have actual boring questions about driving for you at some point. But um, 
probably probably not inflict those on the listeners. <laughs> there is an ABC gen, but it it ain't always be closing. Accelerate brake clutch. I know that one, but the other way round, isn't it? Yeah. No? Let's leave this for another time. <laughs> anyway, sorry to interrupt this fascinating chat, but coming up, <laughs> I chat with author, broadcaster and historical consultant Hallie Rubenhold about her podcast, Bad Women, back for a second season and this time focused on the rich and complex lives of the victims of the Blitz killer, the Blackout Ooh. Ripper. Oh, I love, heard of it. I love her. I've heard of her, obviously, she's been on the podcast. I mean, I've never heard of the uh, the Blackout Ripper. That's exciting. It is. It is. I have nothing to add because I've not done the interview yet, so I can't be like, yeah, she told me this. Don't know. Don't know. I'll move it on then. In that case, I chat to Abby Taylor from the Campaign for Family Friendly Trains about accessibility and sad times in a Greater Anglia doorway. This is very much related to your facts, isn't it? <laughs> the two are linked, I'm not going to lie. And in Jenny Off the Blocks, I'm rounding up all the weekend sporting action. And in Rated or Dated... Bitches, most definitely crazy, <laughs> as we watch 1962's Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. But first, a race to the bottom, mad handsy, among other crimes, and good news with an aftertaste of turd. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we'd just like you to think for a moment about the fact that someone somewhere thinks Liz Truss is doing a good job. I mean, even Liz Truss clearly doesn't think Liz Truss is doing a good job. But in a survey in The Telegraph, they found that 9% of people polled have a favourable view of the current Prime Minister. Just like that information settle. I actually feel sorry for her. <laughs> I actually feel sorry for her. I, don't, I just think she's been thrown to the wolves, hasn't she? Like, they don't give a fuck. She, was ne- she could never do a good job with what she'd inherited. It's just... Like, it just... The slippery slope of excrement that is just like (laughs) pouring out of the Conservative Party just, I think, is really evidence that if if this is honestly like the best you have to offer, it is time for a general election, lads. It's time. It's true. It's true. Every time they have ideas, it does throw me back to that time I looked into a toilet having just screamed soup out of my arse for a good 10 minutes. There's nothing good to be found in there. Why am I looking? Probably best just to look away and pray for a general election. Anyway, though, Jen, the new Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, just like that settled too, just this morning made a snap statement on how to repair his predecessor's mini budget and um, he just junked pretty much all of Quarteng and Truss's promises. In Hunt We Trust? I don't know. I'm afraid there will be more news as it happens. <laughs> Fucking hell. Jen, how are the rest of them looking? Now, Mick, do you remember way back when that box of lost boarding cards was just a twinkle in the Home Office's eye? Ugh. Yep. And Theresa May spoke at the Tory party conference about the need to drop the reputation of nasty party, as she then put it. She had a point, but um, step forward, new Home Secretary Suella Braverman, who, far from the Cameronian utopia of hugging a hoodie, says she, and I quote, dreams of sending. <laughs> dreams. You have all the words in the world and you choose <laughs> dreams of sending asylum seekers to Rwanda on possibly illegal state-sanctioned deportations. I dreamed a dream when I was young of hostile racism for people suffering. 
It's what a dream. I mean, say what you like about her predecessor, Pretty Patel, and I will. But but she was very effective at presenting as one of the worst people in the world. Mm -hmm. I've got to hand it to Braverman, though. She is a contender. She's up in the ante. She's doing a good job. Braverman recently said she was sick of migrants, and again I quote, gaming the system when it came to modern slavery laws. (laughs) Fucking hell. We've seen a 450% rise in modern slavery claims since 2014, she said. I suppose that's why responsibility for modern slavery was quietly taken away from the Minister for Safeguarding last week and reclassified as an illegal immigration and asylum issue. Just take those victims Mm -hmm. and how about instead of having them be victims where we need to help them, we make them criminals. Let's criminalise them. Why not? They're all just fucking playing the system anyway. Since this was revealed... It was also reported that Braverman now intends to go further and legislate to restrict claims by asylum seekers on these grounds. I guess, who cares that until recently, the majority of modern slavery victims recognised by the UK system were actually British children exploited by criminal gangs. Sorry, Jen, you said that wrong. It should be small British criminals exploited by criminal gangs. Yeah. It's a move that has been criticised by the UN Special Rapporteur on Modern Slavery, the former Independent Anti-Slavery Commissioner, a role which does seem to have been quietly shut down, (laughs) and the head of Anti-Slavery International. In a piece for The Independent, Jasmine O'Connor said that Braverman was spreading dangerous narratives that scapegoat victims. That does sound about right to me. Mm. Now, all this sounds shit, right? It absolutely sounds shit. Yeah, we should protest against this, eh? I've got an excellent sign for protest that says, (laughs) fuck this shit. I think it would work very well here. (laughs) Well, Mick, you'd better not be planning to, and again, I quote, hold the public to ransom with your protests, because should that be your intention, you'll fall foul of her new public order bill. Oh, God, tell me more. So the new legislation, which is due to be put before MPs next week, will impose potential custodial sentences for really quite minor crimes, like locking on to objects or buildings and interfering with infrastructure. Okay, so these might also not be minor, to be fair, Mm. but define interfering and define infrastructure before you define 12 months at His Majesty's pleasure. Absolutely, yeah. Perhaps of more immediate concern to most of us, because I don't actually plan to lock myself to any buildings anytime soon, is that it will also allow secretaries of state to apply for injunctions against protests where they threaten, again I quote, serious disruption, among other things. Again, I'm going to want to see some detail here, Mm -hmm. but... Theresa May's racist fans, and I really can't quite believe I'm saying this, they do start to look quite small fry, don't they? The thing is, Jen, when you have a dream, you've got to, you've got to chase that dream. People, might, people might not understand your dream, they might mock your dream, but it's your dream, Jen. Oh, Suella. <laughs> it's a good name to say with a cross voice, though, isn't it? Oh, Suella. <laughs> So everything Jen has just talked about puts a lot more power in the hands of the police. Police that are incontrovertibly already mad-handsy with women and with people of colour. 
Mad Hamzy isn't a phrase directly taken from Baroness Casey's interim report on misconduct procedures and the culture in the Metropolitan Police, but blimey O'Reilly is that report damning about the breadth and the depth of dysfunction within the UK's biggest police force. And right now, this report doesn't even include the public's experience of the Met. Oh, fucking hell. (laughs) I know. Brace yourself for that one. (laughs) Hundreds of Met police officers have been getting away with breaking the law and misconduct, with Baroness Casey describing the current system as, quote, not fit for purpose. And she said, this has to be a line in the sand moment. Casey found many claims of sexual misconduct, misogyny, racism and homophobia had been badly mishandled. One serving officer, just one serving officer, had 11 misconduct notices for allegations involving assault, sexual harassment and fraud. Wow. The report also found racial disparity across the force's internal disciplinary system with a, quote, systemic bias against black and Asian officers. Casey stopped short of all out calling the Met institutionally racist, but said there was such a great level of systemic bias and racism that it might be called an example of institutional racism. (laughs) Tomato, tomato, isn't it? (laughs) And yes, of course, she also found a shitload of misogyny. Again, I'm paraphrasing there. Indeed, the Met is currently investigating more than 600 domestic and sexual abuse allegations against its own officers. (gasps) Its new domestic and sexual offences unit was established in January, since when the team's caseload has grown to 625 allegations of sexual or domestic abuse against officers or police staff. Shall we call it institutional sexism? Again, Casey stopped short of doing that, but here's me very much shouting tomato! I'd also add that as long as the police remain a threat to women and girls, they cannot tackle the endemic male violence against women and girls. So, what has Met Police Commissioner Sir Mark Rowley had to say about the findings? I mean, nothing we've not heard from his predecessors, really. He says he will urgently confront the culture, systems and leadership that have let down the public and officers and staff alike. He did actually go as far to admit that the findings showed hundreds of his officers should have been sacked, which is a a real comfort, (laughs) eh? Fucking hell. And yeah, this is the Met, this is London, but the rot absolutely doesn't stop here. What's happening in the Met goes a long way to explaining the failures in our wider justice system. London Mayor Sadiq Khan also condemns the Met's misconduct system as not fit for purpose, but he also says the following, which I'm going to end this story with because I do think it's important to remember. Quote, The majority of those serving in the Met will be appalled by these latest findings and the decent officers who want to speak out, who have clearly been let down for far too long, must be properly supported. I mean, you do start to think (laughs) that the prosecution statistics for things like rape... Well... Yeah, I know. But I mean, I'm confused, Jen, because I've heard this said time and time again, that actually Mm. it is just a couple of bad apples... So where has all this come from? I am shocked and appalled. Well, Mick, as you do like to say, on the reg, (laughs) there is a second part to that saying, isn't Uh there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And the barrel, it's it's quite smelly. It's quite a smelly barrel now, isn't it? Oh, it's a slushy old. (laughs) And it's not even made fun cider that we can all just get pissed on. It's just attracting wasps. It's rubbish. Well, Mick, would you like some good news? Is there some good news, Jen? I'm not sure it's good news so much or even a shit sandwich as much as it is shit on toast. Uh, 
Maybe it's a delicious Nutella spread brought in to mask the base level turd. So what you're about to serve me is shit on toast topped with Nutella. No, so the toast is shit, but what they've put on top of it is good. Could be Nutella. Could be okay. good. Could be <laughs> Nutella. Or whatever you like. You know, maybe you're a Marmite kind of a gal. I don't think I want anything brown on this particular delicacy. I don't think I really want to eat it. But it is the news, so we'll take it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Pickings are quite slim. This is always the trickiest section, isn't it? The good news section. It really Have we is, found anything we always... that isn't just cheery about otters? Oh, is there we anything always good say, women? don't we? <laughs> Sexism of the week's going to be easy. So, you know... Easy to find, that is. Anyway, uh, ahead of World Menopause Day on Tuesday the 18th of October, as we record this on Monday the 17th of October, or a day after it if you're listening on Wednesday, we bring you the news that last week the Menopause All-Party Parliamentary Group criticised... <laughs> Sorry, I just love the idea of the menopause being all-party. <laughs> it's just all-party. What are they whinging about? It's just like, oh, <laughs> balloons and cake and party puffers. All-party. dancing. That big party, they criticised current support for women going through menopause. It was, it said, completely inadequate. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Perhaps a year-long inquiry was more than was necessary to draw this conclusion. Like, just read the news or something. And as politicians, I'd rather hope you do. But anyway... We are glad it was held nonetheless because it also drew attention to lesser reported on issues such as a growing socioeconomic divide between women who are able to access treatment and those who are not as well as other barriers such as ethnicity. We also welcome the recommendation that all women be invited for a menopause checkup when they turn 45 to help ensure that they are able to access the correct support. Let's make sure that, unlike current access to HRT, support is then actually available to them. Yeah, you need support. Oh, can I have some support? Uh, it's quite busy. Sorry. Uh, oh, I'm going through a tunnel. <laughs> I'm going to float a little idea here, Jane. You know, obviously, her Madge has died. She's no longer with us, but she would send a telegram to people on their 100th birthday. How about if Mm -hmm. Charlie Boy, King Charlie Boy, on a woman's 45th birthday, sends her a little thing going, hey, go for a menopause checkup. I think that could be a winner. Why not? I mean, lots of people don't live to 100, so they are really let off the hook there, aren't they? Like, there's not a lot of writing to be done. So, yeah, why not? Okay, more news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we look at lessons learned and find them wanting. (laughs) Let's head to the BBC. You know, the BBC, which famously ignored staggering allegations about Jimmy Savile's sexual abuse because, quote, sources so far are just the women. It fast became clear that Savile's longtime media home knew more than it let on about his behaviour and did very little to protect the kids he preyed upon. So the tarnishing of Auntie's reputation after the Savile shit show was pretty grave, and, you know, rightly so. Mm. Foreign correspondent John Simpson called it, quote, the worst crisis that I can remember in my nearly 50 years at the BBC. So surely, surely the venerable corporation won't be making that mistake again. Ah, you'd think, huh? You'd think. But last week, Barry Shearman, Labour MP for Huddersfield, accused the BBC of a, quote, unacceptable lack of support for women in the case of stalker Alex Belfield. 
BBC Radio Leeds veteran Liz Green, former head of news at BBC Five Live, Rosina Breen, and the outgoing director of BBC England, Helen Thomas, all want the BBC to commission an external investigation into why their complaints about Belfield's harassment were ignored for the best part of a decade. Turns out Belfield held a grudge against the women after being sacked from Radio Leeds in 2011 and bombarded them with a torrent of abuse on email, YouTube and social media. Thomas told the jury that when she reported it, she was told by one of her superiors to, quote, man up. In 2020, though, Belfield turned his stalking attentions to Jeremy Vine, which is when the BBC started taking notice. And in September, Belfield was jailed for five and a half years after being found guilty of stalking Vine and three other men. But jurors found him not guilty of stalking Green, Breen, Thomas and the former BBC radio presenter Stephanie Hurst. However, despite those acquittals, a judge imposed an indefinite restraining order preventing Belfield from contacting the women, saying each of them suffered a campaign of harassment by email and social media communications. Each of them suffered serious mental health problems arising from Mr Belfield's conduct. Green and Breen have questioned why the BBC only really took the abuse seriously once a high-profile man, Vine, became that target in April 2020, eight years after Belfield started to harass them. I mean, in an understatement of the year, Breen said, the optics aren't good. Not really. I asked repeatedly for help, said Green. I was receiving emails, YouTube videos and tweets which were defamatory and damaging. I wanted it to stop and I was told there was nothing that could be done. Vine is very much on the side of the women and he said, It was hard to take any satisfaction from the jailing of this despicable man when he will not serve a single day in jail for what he did to the four Leeds women. It is very, very important that the BBC learn lessons from the victims of Belfield at BBC Leeds. And indeed, in response, the BBC has said it is conducting an internal investigation, quote, to establish what lessons can be learned from the Belfield case. Probably best not to hold our breath, though, eh? Did the BBC tell the BBC that it was holding a... I love it when the BBC press office reports things to the BBC that are also from the BBC. Yeah. It's almost like the communications aren't working, Jen. I mean, like going back to the interview with Shirin Carlet on last week's podcast mm, about cyberstalking, that's really interesting that the judge imposed restraining orders and he found that they had suffered a campaign of harassment by email, social media, blah, 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 blah. So none of that's being disputed, but yet he wasn't stalking them, but he was stalking the men. The stalking decision was the jurors, not the judges. So right, it, okay. it kind of feels to me like the judge didn't necessarily agree, agree. with the jury. But I wonder why the jury couldn't. How odd. And it, well, misogyny probably. <laughs> but, Jen, I but... felt like it took you a little longer than usual to answer your own question there, even though misogyny is usually the answer. <laughs> yeah, wow. I am joined on the Zoom by historian, author, broadcaster and firm standard issue favourite, Hallie Rubenhold. Hallie, hello. Hello. 
It's great to be here again. It's so nice to have you back. Third time the charm, I think, for Halley on. Yeah, I think so. Well, three times and let's keep going. Oh, yeah. I mean, (laughs) as long as you keep writing interesting things, we will keep talking to you. (laughs) I'll keep trying. (laughs) So we first chatted to you when your excellent book, The Five, The Untold Lives of the Women Killed by Jack the Ripper, came out in 2019. Oh, it seems so long ago. I know, it really does. In the before times, as we like to say now. The precedented times, we knew what was happening so the incredible research you did for the book became the first season of your podcast bad women in 2021 and now you're back with season two of the podcast but before we get into that can you remind us what first compelled you to want to shine a light on Marianne Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes and Mary Jane Kelly? I was really interested in telling the stories of these women and these are Obviously, these are the names of the canonical five victims of Jack the Ripper. The story has always, or had always been in the past, his story. It was basically about, you know, who was Jack the Ripper? Why did he kill these people? That was the main focus. What I always found so extraordinary was that we know absolutely nothing about the identity of Jack the Ripper. Mm -hmm. And yet we know actually quite a lot about who these five women were. And no one had been really interested in reconstructing their lives in a big prominent way you know they had always just been like clues to solving this murder mystery which seemed to be more compelling than the people who stood in this killer's path I just found that extraordinary and I thought I really have to write their stories that restoring murdered women to our memory is so vital and a lot of the information that was out there about Jack the Ripper's victims was wrong was incorrect and you dispelled that you've returned to a similar sort of theme for season two of Bad Women where you're focusing on the rich and complex lives of the victims of wartime killer the Blackout Ripper can you give us a bit of background on the story and tell us what drew you to it we wanted to create something which was a a follow-up to the story of the five victims of Jack the Ripper and we wanted something which kind of moved the story on a little bit further because of course this is in the middle of the blitz wartime in london it's the same city and things have changed things have changed for women in that amount of time you know actually things have changed quite considerably for women in terms of women's rights and yet we find ourselves in a very similar situation where there is a very violent very brutal killer who hates women on the loose in February 1942, who kills four women, attacks six women altogether. And people aren't that familiar with this series of murders, and they're certainly not familiar with these women. And the women's names are, so we remember them, Evelyn Hamilton, Evelyn Oatley, Margaret Lowe, Catherine Mulcahy, who was one who survived, Doris Joanne, and Margaret or Greta Hayward, who also survived. This is an account of their lives. I mean, we really go back into their histories. We look at where they came from. And in doing that, we sort of tell the story of women's position from the early 20th century through until the First World War. What changed for women, especially working class women? Because all of these women came from the working classes. They came from pretty much exactly the same class that the victims of Jack the Ripper came from. But things had actually improved for women, and and that's really fascinating. And the two things that really 
shine in terms of the, the, the things that change for women, education. Mm-hmm. Women had access to education in a way they didn't before. In the case of somebody like Evelyn Hamilton, that really changed the course of her life. She could become a pharmacist, you know, and enter the middle classes and be self-sufficient. That was really something the women who were killed by Jack the Ripper couldn't even have dreamt of. They didn't have that latitude to be able to be independent, to be educated. So education opened up everything for women. I would also say knowledge about their own bodies and sex also did help women a lot because they could, to a certain greater or lesser degree, start to control their reproduction. Mm-hmm. We talk about abortion in this series as well. I mean, in the history of all women, but especially, oh gosh, my gosh, I mean, I was going to say pre-Roe v. Wade and, and here we are again. Wow. And, yeah, and pre, depressing. you know, Mary Stopes and, um, you know, some of the women's major, major challenges was how do they control their reproduction? How do they control their family size? How do they control their bodies so they can control their lives? That factors into our storytelling as well. So we we take the story of these women really right up to the Second World War, and then we look at violence against women, and we look at the circumstances of wartime and how that changes things. Why violence against women goes particularly under the radar, especially within the context of the armed services and, you know, in civilian life as well at this time. For women, the enemy, a lot of the time, the call was coming from inside the house, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. This is it. In the case of somebody like Doris Staples, she was in the ATS and she was killed by a man in uniform. You know, Gordon Cummings, who was the Blackout Ripper, wore a uniform. In a time of war, when everybody has to get behind the troops and get behind the war effort, you know, this idea that men could be doing terrible things to women at home, just like that is almost not even countenanced. I mean, you, you don't even want to talk about that. It's terrible PR, isn't it? <laughs> yes. You know, it, it's terrible. But then, you know, I mean, this also touches into a, a lot of other things that we wanted to address in this series, which is part of the thing that I enjoy as a historian is overturning myths. It's so important. And this era is so over-romanticized. Mm. You know, this idea, oh, the war on the home run, oh, everybody's, you know, in bomb shelter singing, roll out the barrel and making do and mending and, you know, and isn't isn't it wonderful and, you know, jitterbugging and all of this. And, and actually, it was bloody awful. It was a bloody, bloody awful time. And people were miserable to each other and they took advantage of people were killed during the blitz and bodies were robbed Mm -hmm. obviously there was looting from bomb sites you know all of these things that we tend to kind of gloss over we say oh yeah yeah we know about that yeah but roll out the barrel and the bomb shelters and you know britain when it went at it alone and blah 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 i mean we really need to kind of reel that in a bit Hallie, I can't believe you've come on our podcast and you're ruining Blitz spirit for everyone. (laughs) It's all an invention, like many things. I think when people want to move on, you know, well, when people who lived through the Second World War wanted to move on, like much the way we think of the pandemic now, well, what are the good things we can take away from this? Mm. What are the positive things we can say? People don't want to remember the really terrible, really challenging awful experiences they had and so I think this is how myths often grow up is just trying to move on and remember what good things we can take away from something 
you know, that comes back and bites us in, in, in the end. Something I think the podcast really, really gets across, and just bear in mind, listeners, at the moment, I've only been able to listen to the two available episodes. There'll be three when you hear this. But that is something you just touched on there. And for women, the war, for all of its bleak brutality, was also this chance for new opportunities. But again, as you've just touched on, there is never freedoms for women, ever, in any point in history, that come without disapproval and danger yeah absolutely what is really interesting about particularly this set of murders is that these were women alone obviously he preyed on women alone but again there's this desire just to say oh he killed all sex workers as if that's some sort of way of papering of the crime. Well, you know, there were sex work. Well, you know, you know, they you know, they deserved it. That sort of thing that you get with Jack Ripper's victims as well. Well, what do you expect? They were out. First of all, that's absolutely reprehensible. And there's, you know, mm-hmm. the fact that this is, again, a sentiment that's been echoed over the centuries and the decades is ridiculous. There's never a good reason why somebody murders a woman. A woman is never asking to be murdered. Uh-huh. Ever, Agreed. Firm ever. agree, yeah ever but the other thing is you know it's wanting to simplify oversimplify these women's lives so much so that the only thing that comes out is that they're sex workers i mean also evelyn hamilton wasn't a sex worker and the interesting thing is she was a very independent woman she mm-hmm. lived by herself she supported herself and she was out by herself that night when she was murdered and again you know it's very similar to the Yorkshire Ripper as well yeah you know the the Yorkshire Ripper killed a mix of women he killed women out at night and again this desire to make them you know well we have to make them sex workers because we have to demonstrate that you know if you're a good woman bad things don't happen to you yeah karma's not real guys sorry to to break that bombshell to you but that (laughs) that is it's so key isn't it so the blackout rippers victims shared similarities to jack the ripper's victims and, and the big one of those is that many thought that their life choices meant that they were asking for it that they had it coming that narrative that you've just been describing that divides female victims into good women or bad women has not gone away has it absolutely not it's it's still there it's still there and like i mean i what i find so fascinating and horrifying at the same time is i remember some of the first questions that were asked when sarah everard was murdered and also biba henry and nicole smallman you know it's like oh well what were they doing in that park Mm -hmm. at that time Mm -hmm. so that they got murdered why was sarah everard going and seeing a friend and walking home at night that got her murdered no 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 why do we always default onto that these women were doing nothing wrong i mean why are we so quick to defend the actions of the murderer i don't have an answer for you apart from socialization and misogyny i mean yeah yeah misogyny tends to be the answer to a lot of questions we ask on standard issues to be honest with you it's amazing how all pervasive it is how it's just like in so many of our knee-jerk responses to things Mm -hmm. you know there is there is a grain of misogyny or sexism you know in in our responses to anything you know in all fairness there are times i even have to check myself because it's in all of us still Mm -hmm. social conditioning is one hell of a drug that internal misogyny once you've sort of worked it out it's a battle i think and it's one that we just always have to check in on ourselves totally yeah i feel like something really important that the five did was have this this power 
to change talk around murderers and their victims, to shift the focus onto the lives taken rather than sensationalise or, you know, mythologise the killer. Since 2019, when your book came out, have you seen any difference? I think I have. It's interesting. I think the conversation around a lot of things like you know, for some reason, we're getting a lot of television series about serial killers. And there is, you know, in a lot of the criticism, I mean, even television critics are saying, this should be framed in a way which looks at the victims, which, you know, we need to take into consideration the victims we need to. And I think people are much more mindful about this than they have been in the past about what we owe the victims of murder, what we owe their families, what we owe their communities, what we even owe them historically, as opposed to all of this attention that is always focused on the murderer. Like, what purpose is that serving? I know, I know. And you get something like there was a a very, very good TV series, a Danish TV series called The Investigation, based on the investigation into the murder of journalist Kim Wall. They never say the murderer's name. It's all about the Mm. actual investigation and it's about Kim Wall. And then you contrast that with the Jeffrey Dahmer thing that's currently on Netflix. And I tell you what, I mean, a big gold Jeffrey Dahmer in Oxford Circus just looks brash. It just looks ridiculous oh. these days. And I think a lot more people are noticing how much that jars than they used to, which has got to be a they positive are. thing, right? Yeah, they are. They are. I mean, it's it's really hard. I mean, as much as I would like to take credit for that as as an author, <laughs> it's all you. <laughs> it's all it's all me. Um, I mean, I think I think that was the trajectory we were on by the time I started writing this book. But I do think you know, in certain circumstances, it, it sort of sped it along a bit. It's also interestingly, it's made real inroads into education a lot of teachers have been re-evaluating whether they should be teaching jack the ripper related material in their history classes or how they approach that so for example you know i think there's a whole unit in what is it key stage eight i think which is about Victorian crime and a crime and punishment and the Victorian city. And a lot of teachers used to use Jack the Ripper Mm, as a way of getting their students interested. And now what they've done is they flipped it. So they've used the material from the five to look at, you know, how, how does a society create a criminal and what were the societal problems happening that effectively victimized these women and allowed for there to have been a serial killer. And in fact, Edexcel has just changed their textbooks as well to deal with that particular unit in that context. And the five is one of the textbooks? Yes, the material from the five is included in the textbook. That's incredible. That's a triumph. It's a massive triumph because like with with all of these things, it it starts with education. Because one of the things that was fascinating to me Horrific for you, so I apologise. But you got a lot of backlash from men who, they call themselves ripperologists, I'm going to call them bellends, who were very, (laughs) very annoyed with you shifting the focus and furious that you disproved the idea that the victims were all prostitutes. Yeah, they were. And I, I might add also there were a handful of women involved in the trolling as well. But, you know, as we know, misogyny needs women to uphold it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm very, very angry that I'd shifted the the narrative. But I think, you know, I have reflected upon this over the years. 
what I've come to realize is that their anger has almost nothing to do with the, the women being sex workers or not being sex workers. And it has everything to do with the male ego and their egos and people who had invested so much of their time, like decades of their lives in, you know, being like the experts on Jack the Ripper. And here comes this woman from outside their community who's like, actually, I don't think that really means what you think it means and it means this this and this and suddenly it's kind of game over for their hobby and their egos have been built on the back of their accumulated expertise on this and and then suddenly here comes this woman you know who's telling them they're wrong and they're gonna go absolutely apeshit which they did mm-hmm and what I find so amazing is the attacks were so personal as well. You know, this wasn't about, and I, I say this in air quotes, legitimate criticism at all. It started at least eight months before the book even came out. And it was about me and what I look like and criticizing the book's cover and the publicity blurb and prejudging all of this stuff and then just and then when the book came out it was just like this absolute tirade this kind of avalanche of just horrible stuff including comparing me to a holocaust denier saying to me as a historian that in fact in order to have come to these conclusions i had to have lied and hidden evidence and that sort of accusation to a historian it's like saying to a doctor that you're killing your patients or a lawyer that you're taking backhanders and it's completely unfounded Mm. they were so angry and again you know (laughs) hell hath no fury like a man's ego punctured (laughs) you know I, i think that's what it's all about but obviously we don't have an issue with uh, sort of fragile masculinity. That's all sorted. We've sorted oh, that yeah, out. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> it just, it's so baffling to me that they kind of want him to be a hero. He's a legend, but he's kind of a heroic legend. I was re-watching Spinal Tap, which I love. I will hear no criticism <laughs> of Spinal Tap. But there is a bit of when they're chatting about what we're going to do next. And like, oh, we were going to do that Jack the Ripper musical. Saucy <laughs> Jack. He's a cheeky one. And you're just like, but that is what we have been sold that is. about this man who killed five women yeah yeah and i think like the worst take on that i've heard is oh but it happened so long ago you know we can laugh about it well you know maybe say that to the great great grand descendants of these women whom i know they don't necessarily like the idea of their great great grandmothers and great great grand aunts being demonized like this and it's not healthy for our culture it's just not a good thing no, I think we need to stop mythologizing serial killers. I mean, I know yeah. it sounds outrageous to say that out loud, but it just feels like it's a bad thing to do. But they're not rock stars. No. And we treat them like they are. We treat them like somehow they're kind of subversive, you know, cool deviants. It's somehow it's cool. It's somehow it's a kind of cool deviant thing. But there's kind of, you know, wearing a leather jacket and then there's... <laughs> And then there's and then there's murdering people and no that is not I mean, cool. Holly, that is that is quite the juxtaposition you've yeah, got going on there. I mean <laughs> So for this new season of Bad Women you have a new partner in talking about crime and that is Alice Fines. And of course it is all new research. 
It is out now, broadcasting now, with fresh episodes dropping every Tuesday. And there are three already available wherever you get your podcasts. And I absolutely recommend it. I'm definitely going to be listening to the other six that I've not heard yet. There are eight in total. That's correct, isn't it? And then we have two bonus episodes, too. (gasps) Cheeky bonus. Oh, my gosh. And the bonus episodes. Wow. I mean, one of them, I just recorded it. It is absolutely incredible it's about race relations it's about the british women who fell in love with african-american gis and what happened to them and what happened to their children and Mm. how they were accepted nowhere we've covered this a little bit before on the podcast and it is just shocking. shocking yeah hallie where can people follow you online well, I'm on Twitter. That's the best place to get me. Um, it's just my my name is my handle, Hallie Rubenhold. Awesome. And did you did you mention offer that you were doing a book? And can can you tell us I about am. it, Anna? Yes, I'm in the middle of writing a book. It's about the Crippen murder of 1910. So Dr. Crippen murdered his wife. Dr. Crippen was an American. His wife uh, was also an American. She was a musical performer. Her name was Belle Elmore. Crippen poisoned his wife, chopped her up and buried her under the house in Holloway and then ran off with his mistress dressed as father and son. I'm actually telling the story both from the wife and the mistress's perspective and it's fascinating. Do we have a publication date? Is there anything that we can put in our calendars? I have to say that the whole thing has been delayed by two years because I could not get into archives. So it will be a little bit longer but it is definitely coming. Hallie, I'm already excited. Thank you so, so much for chatting with me. Oh, it's been a pleasure as usual. I am joined by Abby Taylor, part of the Family Friendly Trains campaign. Hello, Abby. Thank you very much for joining me. First of all, I mean, it sort of seems pretty self-explanatory, but would you be able to tell me a little bit in your own words what the campaign is about. The campaign group is, we're basically a group of parents who've all had um, experiences on the UK railway network which were, quite frankly, a bit shit. And we found one another through Twitter, through sharing our stories of just real nightmare train journeys. And then we've been doing a lot of work over the course of the last 18 months, petitioning the rail industry, talking to all the different bodies across the Mm. rail industry, gathering people's stories, to get the rail industry to basically change its attitude towards families and making trains places that we can take our children and not be worrying about things like, can I even get my baby on on board the train? Is there going to be a space for the pram? Are we going to be able to change the baby while we're there? And all kinds of other related issues. The reason I've kind of come to know about you is because I had some pretty awful experiences on... And I am going to name and shame Greater Anglia, travelling between my place in London and my mum's place out in Essex. I had things happen like, I mean, quite quite routinely, I get told I have to move out of the bicycle area because there is a legal requirement for there to be space for bicycles on trains. Well, I don't have a problem with that, I'm a cyclist myself, but the question I always ask is, no one else really looks like they're trying to use this, and why is there a legal requirement for there to be a space for bicycles, but not for babies? To me, that seems like 
bad priorities and the argument I get back is well there's loads of space for babies you just have to take them out of their buggy and fold the buggy up and take the child and sit somewhere with the child and I'm like okay that's great have you ever tried to do that by yourself with a two-year-old that's the vibe I think a lot of us have had across various kind of journeys the route that I most commonly take is I live in the Greater Manchester area and I travel down to family in Shrewsbury so the transport for Wales line is, is very familiar to me. I've got a little boy who's four and a half. And when he was little, we'd spend an awful lot of time just sat in the vestibule area or in the wheelchair space. And of course, wheelchair, our, our position in the campaign team is very sort of strong, clear. If a wheelchair user gets on the yeah. train, you absolutely yeah. have to vacate that space. It is their completely unassailable legal and just moral right to be able to use that space. But parents, we, we find ourselves using those spaces when we've got a baby in a buggy, in a, in a pram, because that's the only space that we can go to. And a lot of companies have a policy that you can bring your baby on board. Sometimes good luck actually getting it up the steps because level boarding is extremely uncommon um, across the UK. But uh, there's not actually necessarily going to be a place for your, for your baby. So you are, as, as you said, expected to hold the buggy and hold the baby and then also find some fictional luggage storage that you can put the put the buggy into. And one of the ways that I came to the campaign was after an experience on Avanti, which is another service I use quite frequently with my little boy when he was when he was three. So he didn't even need to sleep in the buggy. I was fine with folding it and then looking around. Well, where do I actually put this damn thing? There's nowhere. There's absolutely nowhere. The assumption is that we'll be able to fold it and stick it into the overhead storage. And of course. Men have 50% more upper body strength than women on average. So it, to me, it seems like a no-brainer that that wasn't a rule that was made up by a woman. And this is an issue that I think disproportionately affects women. For me, it's a very much a feminist issue, given that it's well-documented women are more likely to be the caregivers for their children. So there's this whole host of sort of design flaws in the way that rail services operate in the UK that disproportionately affect parents in general, but, but also women in particular. I agree with you. I think it is a, a feminist issue. But I also think that some people might hear this and be like, well, you know, how big a problem is that? Really? Like, it's a bit inconvenient. It's a bit of a faff. I mean, it's more than a bit inconvenient. But the other thing that I think is really difficult about it is I actually think it's a safety issue as well, because... One of the issues is that you cannot move a buggy down the aisles of a train. Yes. The seats are too close together, the aisle isn't wide enough. Which means that if you are in a vestibule somewhere, which is usually the only place you can actually be, you can't actually move if something goes wrong. Now that might sound a bit extreme because, you know, how common are fires on trains or whatever? Like, probably they don't happen that regularly. But pissed, annoying people on trains are actually really, really common. So the thing for me was that it makes me feel very vulnerable knowing that I can't actually easily get away from an area if I need to. Yeah, I, I do think there, I think there are a variety of ways in which it is, it is a safety issue. And my impression is that there, we, we know that a lot of companies have this rule that they've put down. And I think the whole collapsing your buggy in order to put it in a different place means that you're not blocking an exit and therefore is, is a safer way to operate. They have to enact these rules because that's what the company position is. 
And even the people in the train operating companies and the customer services departments that we've been speaking to, they appreciate that, that all of these things are, you know, they're false premises, that it's, it's safer for a, a baby to be out of their buggy and the buggy to be stored away somewhere, somewhere that doesn't exist. Because in practice, people either leave the buggy standing up because you know, no, one, no one wants to wake their sleeping baby. Mm. And no one in coach A of an Avanti bus coast train which is the quiet coach, no one wants a screaming baby because a parent has just been asked to wake up their baby, take them out of their pram and hold on to them because that's what company policy is. So a lot of parents will end up leaving their baby in the buggy and putting it in the vestibule area and sitting on the floor in the vestibule area. And then everyone's blocking the fire exits. And that in itself is dangerous. The other option of like holding the baby and the baby's, you know, not, not got somewhere sort of like safe and secure for them to be. Um, that also feels quite unsafe. And then there's all the safety issues around things like passenger assist not being available for, from lots and lots of companies for you to actually be able to get uh, to, to use the ramps to get on to get on board the train. There are a whole host of issues that I, I, I do. I agree that there, there are lots of safety issues around that and mobility around the train also being an issue. There's also things like you might be able to find somewhere to put your, your push chair in the vestibule area. But like you say, you can't get down the train. So God knows where the baby change facilities are. They may be really far away from you, but you then have to haul your baby and all the associated stuff that comes with a baby to wherever you need to change the baby. So in the end, a lot of the time, my experience, what I ended up doing a lot was changing my baby on the floor of the train in the vestibule which is gross for absolutely everyone <laughs> especially the baby right Christ. yes yeah that's another thing is that as you say there's a lot of associated gubbins that you have to take around with you when you have a small child the space underneath the buggy is actually where you put a lot of that gubbins so there's kind of like a double ridiculous expectation here in that you then have to get all of that stuff out and mm -hmm. find somewhere for that stuff to be as well. It strikes me that it's a completely unrealistic expectation and I can't imagine other than, oh, I don't know, sexism, <laughs> how that has come to be. Like, there, there's clearly not enough women in those meetings, are there? I, I suspect that is the case in, in a lot of the original design of the network, but I think... Historically, the UK rail network over the course of the last, I don't know, 20 years has been very much designed around commuters and the sort of demographic of, of a commuter. But as we've seen, particularly as people start working from home, a lot more of the rail industry, people moving around as people for quote unquote leisure travel. And for me, I will never be able to drive because medical reasons. So rail for me, I love going on the trains um, when, you know, when we have a good day and find somewhere to go. There's lots of like enormous benefits to going on the trains, but it just, it needs to be easier. And the people who are designing the processes around which you even book your tickets through to getting off the train at the other end, all the different user groups need to be involved. And parents quite obviously have not been involved in any of that end-to-end -end stuff. For example, traveling with my four and a half year old down to London, I decided to give myself the luxury of paying 50 quid for a ticket for him, even though under fives travel for free, in order that I'd be able to secure a seat for him because under fives travel for free, but this means that they don't get a seat. 
And four-year-olds are pretty bloody heavy. And so mm. there was no way in hell I was going to do a two-hour journey with him sat on my knee. So I told the booking form that he was six. And uh, they booked us two tickets. And his was miles away from me. And I was like, wow, oh, it's just great, isn't it? So abandons the whole idea of using the tickets we just pay for. So even just stupid things like that, like just booking stuff through to how do you get a pram? into the station when the ticket barriers don't work if you've yeah. got a pram in front of you. There's just a whole load of things that the rail industry could be doing that just have not been designed into the, into the process. So, I mean, I've mentioned Greater Anglia and I'm going to mention them again because they are awful. You're welcome, Greater Anglia. Be better. I wondered, are all train operating companies as bad as each other? Because you've got a scorecard, right, which you use to sort of rank them. We have, and this is something we're going to do every year. We did a couple of months ago. Um, we put out a questionnaire to all of the train operating companies across the UK and said, here's a bunch of questions. Tell us what you've got in terms of your family-friendly pr- provision. And the scores across the board were pretty dismal. The strongest ones were actually Transport for London and c to c so that's short distance journeys in the southeast, which will be of no surprise to anyone outside of the of, of London and the southeast. The worst ranking ones were Avanti, Cross Country, um, Grand Central and, and ScotRail. And then 10 companies just didn't respond to us at all, of which one is actually Greater Anglia. Knew it. Um, Knew it. And <laughs> Transpennine Express, East Mid Railway, Northern, the ones that three of the ones that I'm most familiar with. So training operating companies have been engaging with us, but sort of it's it's a bit of a mixed bag. But even those highest scoring ones, still, quite frankly, not good enough. There's an awful lot more they could be doing. There's some like super quick, relatively easy stuff, like extending passenger assistance to families, which would enable you to be able to, say, use the ramps to get on and just get assistance either end of the journey through to creating buggy space, pram, unfolded pram space that you can book in advance on the actual trains themselves. And that, we know, is sort of like a much bigger proposition for the industry to reckon with. But it's absolutely not outside the realms of possibility. In this email that I sent to Greater Anglia, I, I did actually get a very nice response from a lady called Yvonne, who uh, said that she had a small child herself, and so she understood my frustrations. Thanks, Yvonne. And one of the things that she wrote was that regarding accessibility standards for buses and trains, these are specified by the Department for Transport and are regulated by law. So if we refer to a bus or train as accessible, it means it meets those legal standards. These standards relate to accessibility for disabled users, specifically wheelchair users and people with sensory impairments. She says that... They expect government will undertake a review of standards for train design in the near future. So if trains are designed on the basis of regulations that the government puts in place, we should probably be applying some pressure there as well, right? Again, like who are in those conversations at DFT? Yeah, I think what, one of the things that would be good for people to be doing, if they're having a, um, a crap experience on a train, travelling with a with a baby, a small child, is to write to their MP 
and to to ask them to um, put pressure on the Treasury to put funds towards any changes that the train operating companies request to put in place. But here is the twist. The train operating companies on the whole have been really, really receptive and their customer services department say, yep, we get it. And a lot of them have kids um, and they see the need and they think this is super duper good idea. And some of them are, you know, engaging us, using us to, to sort of consult on the things that they want to do. But since British Rail was privatised, the rail industry is so massively fragmented mm. that the people who run the trains are not the same as the people who own the trains. And they're different from the people who make the trains. They're oh, different wow. from the people who commission the whole service because the franchise is so sort of divided up. And so everyone was pointing the finger at someone else. It's not our responsibility because we don't own the trains. It's not our responsibility because we don't design the trains. But ultimately, all roads lead to the Department for Transport. So we took the liberty of approaching the Department for Transport, who were extremely receptive to the whole proposition that we're putting forward, and said, well, we will you know, talk to the Treasury about making the changes. If the train operating companies request to make those changes to their franchise agreements, but the trouble is none of the train operating companies have been asking to make the changes. So the finger then turns back to the train operating companies. But that is insane because the government, clearly they can mandate this if they want to. There's the absolute sort of like safety regulations that all Mm. trains have to adhere to. And then there's a, a document called the Key Train Requirements Document, which does what it says on the tin. And we have been asked to and are putting in suggestions for things that should go into the Key Train Requirements, which say things like there should be space for unfolded, but any new or refurbished train must include space for um, unfolded prams and pushchairs, design of toilet change facilities should bear in mind various child-friendly things. We're hopeful that those things will come through. In, in their response, Greater Anglia said that they expect there to be a review of standards for train design in the near future. That is going to be a very lengthy process. But you are asking train operating companies to sign a family-friendly pledge, which is presumably something they can do in the meantime. What kinds of things, what sort of commitments are they making through that pledge? We are, through the pledge, asking train operating companies, we're writing, writing to the CEOs of all of the um, train operating companies, saying to, to sign this pledge to commit to uh, not commissioning a new train or a refurbishment without putting in place space for unfolded prams and pushchair spaces, to not build a new or refurbished train without thinking about how families will use the toilets. Think about things like that obviously without in any way encroaching on the ability of people in wheelchairs to, to use those those facilities. Absolutely not. That's completely paramount. We're asking them to have tra- family-friendly travel information on their trains so that you can get onto any of the trains and know what to expect and know where to go and what to do. They'll be pledging to extend passenger assistance to pa- parents and to build support to families into their staff training and also to sign up to the breastfeeding network, breastfeeding friendly scheme. And I anticipate that if we if we get the rail industry to really commit to making these changes, it will be a long-term thing. We wouldn't see full transformation for, I don't know, 15 years because, say, for example, Avanti unveiled a refurbishment of, I think it's their Pandolino fleet, a couple of months ago, that they commissioned 
prior to the pandemic, so actually what it was designed for was for commuters, whereas actually the profile of the average rail traffic has changed since then. Mm. But we wouldn't expect to see another refurbishment for, I don't know, another 10 or 15 years. So as we start getting companies to agree to this, it will it will happen sort of iteratively as refurbishments come up, as new train conditions come up. So it's it, it's a long term thing, but we've got to start now. We've we've got to start now, otherwise it will never happen. I do want to say that the point of your campaign is it's a family friendly campaign, but this is not in any way to diminish or undermine the parallel battle that is going on to make transport more accessible to people with disabilities and people in wheelchairs because I mean we have all seen in the news absolute horror stories about people using trains and I I know someone who is a wheelchair user who also has told me things about his experience using the trains that have horrified me what can we do as listeners if we want to support your campaign and help you guys and where can we follow you on social media uh, well, one of the things is, as I've said, write to your MPs and ask them to put pressure on the Treasury to fund any family-friendly changes that companies ask for. More easier, what immediate ones to do, if you have, if you're travelling with a small person and you have a crap experience on the train, complain to the train operating companies so that they're building this body of evidence that tells them this is an issue. Because we know from where we found one another as a campaign group, Twitter, that every single day there are parents tweeting the the company's in just sheer fury of having a um, a difficult journey and we know also that there are people having you know decent journeys every day but all of this evidence needs to stack up somewhere so complain to the train operating companies you can put it on twitter you can send it via their customer services show them that this is an issue that they really need to address Follow us and amplify us on social media. On Twitter, we're at trains underscore for underscore kids. And we have, as of, I think, two weeks ago, joined Instagram. We're at Family Friendly Trains there. Abby, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny Off The Blocks, that time of the week where we deliver a brutal uppercut to the patriarchy as we discuss all things women's sports. Of course, I'm referencing the middleweight title unification bout fought by Clarissa Shields and Great Britain's Savannah Marshall at the weekend. I spoke about it on last week's podzine and in case you've not been following, that fight was won on unanimous points decision by Clarissa Shields. Sad news for those of us backing Marshall, but worthy of a mention in terms of the glowing praise both the fighters have had since then. All the press around the fight has focused on what a great bout it was and how well both fought and how much it was needed at a time when men's boxing is so overshadowed by controversy. Marshall's coach Peter Fury said they both stepped up and fought out of their skin. Savannah showed she had a true fighting heart and that's what we want to see more in boxing. Now, I'm reluctant to go into this too much because sport is sport. If you enjoy watching men box, there's no reason why you shouldn't enjoy watching women box. And I don't want to go off on one about the moral superiority of women's sport or women athletes because I think it's lazy and not always particularly helpful to hold women up to a more virtuous or better standard. 
But what I will say and have said before, I've often found that women's sport is played with a kind of rawness, passion and freedom that we don't see so much in men's sport. I think that is for two reasons. A, because the weight of expectation is is not the same for women given the comparatively low interest historically in women's sport. And B, because they've had to work harder to be there. They've overcome more obstacles and for a fraction of the money and respect that male athletes are awarded. So they really do want to be there. I'm not saying that's a reasonable trade-off. I want women to have all of those things that male athletes have. But I also want to keep that powerful punch every pun intended here, that women's sport packs. Looking back at last week's World Cup playoffs, which we also spoke about on last week's podzine, sad times, I'm afraid, for Scotland and Wales, who both missed out on a place in the 2023 tournament. Great news, however, for the Republic of Ireland, who booked their historic place in the next World Cup, having never before qualified. Congratulations to them. And while we're on the subject of women's football, get well soon to our favourite... Chelsea manager Emma Hayes, who last week announced she would take a period of time out to recover from an emergency hysterectomy as a result of her ongoing battle with endometriosis. She doesn't have to explain herself, she doesn't have to talk about it in public, it's none of our business, but again I must pay tribute to her openness, knowing that this will help other people who are experiencing similar kinds of things. That is leadership. Again, I've said it before, Emma Hayes for Prime Minister. And I wish you could see the serial killer-like scroll in which I wrote this, which is only really funny if you know how much I love Emma Hayes. Not that much. Don't be worried about me. It's fine. She's handed the reins over to assistant coach Denise Reddy, who will be taking care of Chelsea in her absence. And we wish Emma Hayes a speedy recovery. Moving on to more incredible women, you'll no doubt be aware of the troubles going on in Iran at the moment following the death of Masa Amini in police custody after she was detained for not wearing her hijab properly, in inverted commas. Since then, women have been cutting off their hair and burning their hijabs in protest. Elnaz Rabaki, the first Iranian woman to win a medal in climbing at a world championships, has been uncontactable by friends since Sunday after competing in South Korea without her hijab. The Iranian embassy in Seoul said it denies fake false news and disinformation regarding Rabaki. We obviously hope she's found well and watch this space for more news on that. That's all from me this week and I'll be back next time with more women's sports. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Hannah, what classic that we watched this week made me ponder exactly what I would write in a letter to Daddy. (laughs) 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 This week we watched a film that spawned an entire subgenre of cinema, revived the flagging careers of two Golden Age Hollywood stars, as well as inspiring a book and a TV series about how much they loathed each other a film that was the subject of a genuinely wonderful parody by French and Saunders, Mm. a film that is described as a favourite by both Akira Kurosawa and RuPaul. Not many films could manage all of this, but this one does. Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, which first appeared in cinemas 60 years ago this month. I'm going to say it again. Bitches, most definitely (laughs) be crazy. The very definition The film, which is based on a novel by Lucas Heller, tells the tale of two sisters, the eponymous Jane Hudson, played by Bette Davis, and her elder sister Blanche, played by Joan Crawford. 
The actors' hatred of each other was legendary, although director Robert Aldrich said both were aware of how important the film was to their career. So, quote, it's proper to say they really detested each other, but they behaved absolutely perfectly. It didn't take long for hostilities to resume after filming was done, and when Davis, rather than Crawford, was nominated for the Best Actress Oscar, the latter called every other nominee and offered to accept the award on their behalf, should they <laughs> not be able to attend. Oh, this is just a masterclass in Passag, this. Her fiendish scheme paid off, as when Anne Bancroft's name was called, she was indeed elsewhere, so Crawford mounted the stage, not Davis. Best Actress was just one of five nominations for the film, but it only took home one. Best Costume Design, brackets black and white. Didn't realise they were ever split up at that point, but they must have been. Yeah, because it could have been filmed in colour. You might get onto this, but they could have filmed it in colour. Contemporaneous reviews were a mixed bag, with many finding the film too camp and Jane and Blanche to be grotesque caricatures. Who wants to join me in a shout of, that's the fucking point! (laughs) I know, I was nodding because I didn't want to interrupt your flow, but like, okay, you got the point of the film and then just let it fly right over your head there, reviewers. In the intervening 60 years, however, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane has become a cult classic. It now has a 92% rating on Rotten Tomatoes and in 2021 was put in the National Film Registry in the Library of Congress. 2021. Fucking I suppose it does star women. It remains a big hit amongst LGBT film fans, because of course it does. And it resembles two other classics popular in the same circles, The Glass Menagerie and Grey Gardens, both of which centre on women whose milkshake once brought all the boys to the yard (laughs) has now been curdling in a hot flat for 20 years. (laughs) So back to the plot. In 1917, Baby Jane Hudson is a star, all curls and cutesy songs. The only thing scarier than her is the life-size doll being hawked to her devoted fans. Fucking hell, it's terrifying. And the only thing scarier than that is the fan-made dolls you will find if you Google Baby Jane doll. So, Jen, please, (laughs) please do not do that. No, no, (laughs) note to self, do not. Jane's elder sister Blanche is told by her mother that her time will come. And when it does, she's to be nicer to her sister than her sister has been to her. Skip forward a few years and Blanche's star is indeed on the rise while Jane's is on the wane. Until, that is, an accident happens outside the sister's home that leaves Blanche in a wheelchair and Jane her resentful carer. The meat, which could be rat meat, of the plot takes place, quotes, yesterday, where a mostly drunk Jane becomes abusive towards her sister after a TV channel begins rerunning Blanche's old films. Things get worse when she discovers that Blanche is planning to sell the house, which Jane suspects will lead to her being sent to the booby hatch. Jane's not right about much, but you wouldn't get odds at Labrooks for that. (laughs) (laughs) The pair become locked in a battle of wills to gain control of Blanche's life. It does not end well. One last thing to say before we start talking, and it's a fun fact, followed by a few not-so-fun The teenage neighbour in this film is played by Bette Davis's eldest daughter, then known as B.D. Merrill. Mm. She later wrote a book called My Mother's Keeper, which portrayed Davis as an overbearing alcoholic. Friends of Davis refuted the claims. And if I'm mentioning that, I should probably also mention that one of Joan Crawford's children, Christina, famously wrote a book called Mummy Dearest, which portrayed her mother as, checks notes, an overbearing alcoholic. 
These claims have also been refuted by friends, although it didn't stop Hollywood making the book into a film which stars Faye Dunaway. I read Joan Crawford's Wikipedia while I was oh, watching this, and it said that she she really is. She had, what did she have, four adopted yeah. children, five, but one of them was like taken yeah. back by their birth mother, I think it said. And she disinherited Christina and uh, a boy, and she gave the other two... She had an estate of two million pounds, two million dollars rather, and she bequeathed them both seventy-seven thousand dollars. <laughs> Just gave the rest of it away to charities. Great. I find that very interesting. We can talk about Joan Crawford in a bit because she is really interesting, but. I just wanted to know what the situation was with this. Had either of you seen this before? Was it on your radar? Uh, I mean, I know of it, partly because I have a feeling my friend Vera is like obsessed with it. I've never seen it before. Mick? I'm really annoyed with myself that I haven't seen it before because obviously I was really aware of it, not least because of whatever happened to Baby Dawn, which is the French and Saunders skit you referred to earlier, which is absolutely glorious, was in last week's mail out. If you've not already subscribed, subscribe, little treats for you. <laughs> but yeah, I was like, why haven't I watched this before? Because I feel like I've missed out on multiple watchings because, oh, are we allowed to say I fucking loved it? <laughs> Oh, it's glorious. I absolutely love it. Interestingly, I saw it the first time when I was about 18 or 19 and it didn't really do much for me. Maybe I was a bit younger than that. And then I saw it again when I was about 30 and I just thought, it is amazing. But I will say that's around the time that I also saw Grey Gardens, which I also love, but in exactly the same way. It's the pathos and the tragedy, dancing around the edge of madness and what happens to women when they're on their own. Mm. All of that stuff is in both of those. Do you think... And we saw The Glass Menagerie, and she's very Amanda Wingfield as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. There's a man in the house, put on my best dress and dance. <laughs> do, do you think that we love it because there's a, a slight worry that we could become it? Yeah, I mean, that is a Which would you be? Which it? would you be, Hannah? <laughs> oh, always the maddest. Always the maddest of the two. I mean, absolutely. Okay, so here's a question. I wonder why you think, I have a theory, why you think it wasn't particularly popular contemporaneously. Because they're not very nice women, are they? They're pretty challenging characters. So I imagine in 1962, I mean, obviously, the challenging characters did exist in that time, but I imagine there would have been less sympathy towards them then than possibly there is now, I guess, also like the madness of it, the the kind of like mental health aspect of it as well, would have been less. I don't know. I guess people were kind of less interested or talked less about those kind of issues. So maybe that is part of it as well. It's mostly women as well, isn't it? It's you know, there's one there's one bloke in it who's a spoiled mama's boy, and he's not a nice guy. And, yeah, it's mostly focused on women. We're not far in 1962. We're shockingly not far from women being chucked in a madhouse for stuff much less than what Baby Jane is up to. Yeah. It says a lot about fame because it's not just about recapturing her youth. It's about recapturing, you know, Jane Hudson goes in with a really high bar of being Mm. adored. But, like, 1962, just a few months earlier, Marilyn Monroe had died. And I wonder whether people just weren't, into having a conversation about how the Hollywood system fucks women up, chews them up mm. and spits them out, if you know yeah. what I mean. Because they, they both had, like, they both have massive battles with studios themselves. Mm, yeah. So I wonder if it was showing an ugly side of Hollywood and that's why people didn't, didn't buy into it or didn't like it. 
yeah, I think that's a decent theory for sure. Didn't it kickstart like a genre called hagsploitation? Psychobiddy. Psychobiddy, hagsploitation. Yeah. What else is in that genre, though, apart from, obviously, Grey Gardens? I couldn't... No, I mean, that's not in that genre, actually. Really poor adaptations of it. But I think there is a line between this and all of that stuff that we're seeing come back in the 90s. All of that sort of fatal attraction and single white female. But these are older women as well. So I guess that's another reason why maybe it wasn't. So it's, it's A, it's women, and B, it's older women. So it's not like, you know, like this this new kind of bitches be crazy genre that that we're talking about, the hand that works cradle and whatever. Mm. At least you get tits with that, right? So, like, <laughs> there's there's no joy to be found for a demographic, shall we say, if you don't even get tits with your crazy women. Yeah. I've got a question about Baby Jane, the character. And also just to state that Bette Davis is... She's just phenomenal. She, yeah, oh, she's really yeah. good. A deliciously lurid melodrama infused in every single, like, glance, scene, everything. I wondered, she's made the 100 worst villains in Hollywood kind of lists and stuff, Baby Jane. And I wondered if either of you had any sort of sympathy or empathy for her. Oh, yeah, loads. Baby Jane is such a great character that actually, even in the French and Saunders parody of it, there is a really moving moment where Dawn French is drunk, standing, dancing amongst those dolls. She's such a tragedy. Mm. And she's got a real Tennessee Williams mm. vibe about her. She is just a human tragedy. So, yeah, I do have sympathy. But for also, her. her sister, spoiler alert, as we learn at the end. So, it's interesting, isn't it? Because they set it up like Blanche is going to be the bastard. But of course. She isn't, but she kind of is, because what she's done to her sister is fucking awful. Mm. She's let her believe for her, like her whole adult life that she is responsible for a spinal injury that ruined her career and left her in a wheelchair. Like that's that's as wrong acts go. It's up there, isn't it? Like, and the, and the line that that Jane says after that is incredibly moving, isn't it? Because her response to that is, "You mean all this time we could have been friends?" Hmm. Mm. There is a moment in this where I have my most sympathy for Jane and that's when she's downstairs doing something and Blanche keeps ringing the bell and having been someone (laughs) who was a carer temporarily of someone who I was a lot closer to and a lot fonder of, there's nothing like somebody calling you for something when you're still halfway through the first fucking job they gave you that makes you like, yeah, I know you're ill and I know you can't do it yourself. Stop ringing the fucking bell. The tension between carer and person they're caring for is a really interesting topic and I think this actually does stray into it quite well yeah I agree my grandma was bedridden from when I was very little from when she was very young from in her mid-50s and she had a bell that she would ring when uh, she wanted my granddad to do something because he was her carer and uh, after a while he just took the the little bell out so it just didn't make any noise anymore but I mean she could still shout the house was very small she still like got his attention but I think it was just the noise of the bell started to really drive him insane and I you know while I was like oh it's not very nice I can understand that it's a it's very much a two-way relationship isn't it I think carers get a hard time as well as the person who needs the Mm. care Yeah, I read a piece by a man in The Guardian about the 60th anniversary of Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. His opinion is that there could be no sympathy for Jane at all because she's just too horrific. And I thought, well, man, I see where you're coming from. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, she's also an alcoholic. And she had a really fucked up childhood. Mm. There was a child. She didn't have a childhood. Yeah. 
I even have a bit of sympathy for the bloke because even though he's a knobhead, he does get to be there when the most horrific thing ever happens, which is she comes out holding the full-sized <laughs> Puts it on his knee. Yeah, it's just, oh <laughs> it my is. God. That is like payback for everything that he does. It's horrible this. to watch, isn't it? That scene where she's... But this is the thing is like, I don't understand. Like, obviously, now it's kind of like bits of it are a bit of a joke or whatever they've been parodied blah 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 it's it's very camp but like to what extent is is it meant to be a completely serious film is it meant to be funny or no it's meant to be camp it's It's meant to be camp right camp it's meant to be like black humour okay Yeah. yeah it does its horror element very well yeah I mean it is a real mishmash of Mm. all sorts of genres it's very gothic it's also an interesting time capsule in the sense that Blanche is in a wheelchair and uh, a film is released and presumably accepted by people in 1962, that that means you just have to spend the rest of your life yeah. in one room. In a room. <laughs> you know what I mean? Nobody sort of questions that. I mean, as a snapshot of what people thought of disability in 1962, it's, it's, it's a pretty good one. There's a line where Elvira discovers that Jane has locked Blanche in the bedroom. At this point, she doesn't know quite how locked up in the bedroom Blanche is, um, <laughs> as locked as a person can be. And she goes, what if there'd been a fire? And I'm like, she'd have been fucked anyway. She can't get down the stairs. Mm. It doesn't matter yeah. that that room's locked. Yeah, there's there's very little for the health and safety concerns of someone who is bedbound or wheelchair bound there. We will show in at the screen, Elvira, why have you put the fucking hammer down? And she's like, oh, <laughs> yeah. come on now. As we said, just incredible. I mean, she's incredible full stop it's it's a more showy role so obviously i can see why she got the oscar nomination and i i do think she's a really interesting woman i mean i don't think joan crawford stands out uh, in this film as much obviously but also as a whole but she is so interesting when you read about her she strikes me as a really really modern celebrity in that she kind of reminds me of the kardashians and i mean it as a compliment to both of Talk them. me through it. Not as an insult to either of them. <laughs> in that she was really, she was really adept at self-publicity. She like made herself famous. She like went off and did other stuff. She became quite famous as a flapper girl. She was like a master of self-publicity. And she also did this thing where she got involved in all these feuds, which seems really sort of social media famous. Do you know what I mean? It's, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think she's, she, she's really interesting. Well, she was the one who discovered the book as well and wanted to get the film made. Yeah. She yeah. took it to first to Hitchcock, but he couldn't do it, and then to Aldrich. So, yeah, she was really key to getting the film made at all. I think going back to what we were saying about it being criticised is it actually suffers from constant comparison when you read any of the contemporaneous reviews, constant in comparison to Hitchcock, mm. because it's a black and white horror. So, you know. And the reason it's not in colour was for budget reasons. But Bette Davis did famously say that she thought colour would make it too pretty and tragedy shouldn't be pretty. And I think she's bang on. I mean, it'd still be brilliant in colour because the performances are so good, the story's so fucking wild and it's so gloriously gothic. But that black and white really adds something to it, I think. I think the way they make her look is incredible as well. Because it's mm, not like... The vaudeville yeah. makeup. Yeah, it, they've obviously made her look older than she actually is because she's only in like her mid-50s. 54 when she made it, yeah. So they've obviously made her look sort of like more old and decrepit than she actually would have looked then. 
But if you put that kind of pancake mm. makeup on, that white pancake makeup, it does sit differently. It does sit in creases. Yeah, it does. And they've painted her a like, slightly downturned lip. So, yeah, it absolutely ages But her. you wouldn't have been able to... But, yeah, obviously, if that had been in colour... You'd have you'd have seen that it's it, it doesn't necessarily look like I mean you can tell what they've done like how they've achieved that look but it doesn't necessarily look like they've painted her white do you see what I mean I think she's meant to be painted white I think she's purposefully recreating her vaudeville makeup mm. from when she was a, a baby like the really? doll mm. yeah that's part of her psychosis her madness i don't want to use the wrong word i'm sure i just had but whatever's going on Mm. with her that's part of it she wants to be one of the things that i find really moving is when she starts singing and she catches sight of herself in a mirror and she screams because she's like that's not how she looks Mm. in her head and i think that is really well observed and really quite moving Mm. the singing though is terrifying i actually think and much like the other things that i mentioned like grey gardens is I actually think it says from for a film, you know, by a man, written by from a book by a man, I actually think it manages to say a lot about women mm. and actually genuinely insightful things. And that presumably is coming from Bette Davis and coming from Joan Crawford themselves. That's where that's coming from. Yeah, I you know, agree. The sort of, like, like I say, the fear of age, of irrelevance and... I mean, that obviously happens to men as well because men have midlife crises, but it, it happens in a different way. It's, I think it's easier to sort of sort of portray with women perhaps sort of the horror of unfulfilled dreams that, that they... Well, certainly that Jane has. Well, that's the difference, isn't it? So it's choice. Blanche, is, yeah. we find out at the end, Blanche chose obscurity, but she also chose obscurity for Jane, who didn't want that. And fine, she was getting like poor reviews in the film she was in, but she didn't want to not be in the limelight anymore. That was absolutely chosen for her. And by taking away her choices and making her into a carer, when she was, she was a little brat, she was terrible. Also, like her act was awful. But anyway, that's by the by. It's made her go mad. It's made her turn to drink. All of these things is because she had choice taken away from her. But also that is, you know, what famously happens to child stars and I wonder how much like acceptance there would have been of that in 1962 that child stars have tended to go off the rails a little bit yeah Shirley Temple Judy Garland they were names that were yes, very so. much in people's yeah. recent memories I guess the thing with Judy Garland is though she didn't go off the rails she was pushed off the rails I mean the, the reason <laughs> she had a problem with drugs is because they gave them to her yeah well I think I know the answer to this but Whatever happened to Baby Jane, rated or dated? Yeah, rated. Oh, I, I loved it so much, rated. Yeah, 100% rated. I, I want to watch it again. <laughs> yeah. Pretty soon, because yeah. I enjoyed it so much again. Standard yeah. issue Christmas party. Let's get hammered <laughs> and watch Paint Whatever Happened to Baby white. Jane. All dresses the doll. <laughs> We've all got a dress as the doll. What are we doing next week? So since it's going to be Halloween and obviously the precursor to a very seminal series from my teenage years, we're going to be watching 1992's Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I have never seen it. Me neither. Three for three. Standard issue. For all women.